You're listening to The Science of Storytelling, presented by Pressboard, a show about marketing, media, and the people making it happen. Your host is Jared Grimm. On today's episode of The Science of Storytelling, I'm chatting with Per Schneider, Chief Content Officer at IGN. Per's story is an incredible one. From a kid growing up in small-town Germany that just loved to play video games, to navigating the ups and downs of the dot-com crash, acquisitions and sales by Rupert Murdoch, and why even all these years later he still gets super excited about his sparkly new PlayStation 5. This episode is a literal play-by-play of the world of media from the last 25 years, and Pear has had a front row seat the whole time. So get ready for a wild ride. It's game time. Pear, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, this is interesting because you and I planned on doing this episode back in February of this year. <laughs> and I remember, I remember I was really excited about it because normally I was doing them in either New York or I live in Vancouver, Canada. So doing them in Vancouver in person. And since you were based in San Francisco, I was going to come down there. We were going to go to the IGN headquarters, maybe use a studio. I love San Francisco. I was really looking forward to it. I think we had planned on it being late February or early March. And then obviously the world imploded from that time. So it's been 10 months since we originally planned that. And so my first question for you is, since the last time that we spoke, how has your year been? Oh, my. Uh, yeah, I remember February. We, I think we had the studio already for you, too. Uh, and, and I think you would have liked it. We, we had a really cool setup. Well, the world has changed a lot because we're actually closing those very studios. Um, rather than sitting on you know open studio space we can't use, we decided we're, we're, we're going to close it until we know what's what have uh, you know shifted our entire company to working from home and then you know we we have additional office space in San Francisco we're owned by Ziff Davis Media under the the J2 Global ba- brand and they have a bunch of um, companies in San Francisco so we're moving in with some of them after all of this is over again so yeah a lot has changed we shifted entirely from studio production in four locations and for us that's uh, San Francisco LA London and Sydney to doing everything remotely, uh, from you know recording footage for games to live streaming entire events like Comic Con, all of that had to run through people's homes. Well, yeah, and so there's almost like these two parts to your world too. You like run a media business, which is events and editorial, and you've got staff. And the media business and the event business has not been easy, no matter who you are in that space is like wildly fluctuating advertising revenue and everyone's working remote and events have had to change entirely. And then there's these industries that you cover, like gaming, Uh, gaming, I would and I'm curious, you you know, the gaming space better than I do. I mean, I'm, I'm probably like a light gamer. I don't know what the there's probably personas. I'm not sure which gaming persona that I fit in. Uh, but that gaming industry, like this was a big year for for them, wasn't it? With the like PlayStation came out with a new console and Xbox. And that doesn't happen every year. What is it? Every like six years or something? Yeah, or more up to eight sometimes. Um, yeah, it was meant to be a big year with the new consoles coming out, obviously, you know, PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X and S. Uh, and, you know, there was some... Uh, some talk about whether Switch would have a new model coming out as well. You know, we had Stadia launch at the end of last year. So definitely a lot going on in gaming. 
Um, and, uh, you know, then this whole uh, situation hit and uh, some of the industries we cover, like entertainment, obviously were heavily impacted, right? Entire uh, movie shoots shut down and movies uh, shifting from um, from theatrical releases to home releases, whereas gaming was gaming was strong, you know, not just because the companies were, um, you know, are still able to continue creating games from home, um, but also because they were fast in shifting their production from, you know, some of the uh, affected areas like China to new markets for making sure that we have uh, enough consoles hitting the, hitting the market. In, In reality, you know, PS5 and Xbox are sold out. So, you know, they're still behind, but the, the launch was nevertheless strong. And then you had certain games like Animal Crossing, which uh, in any ordinary year would have been a big hit, turned into mega hits because they were servicing an audience stuck at home, right? They provided kind of like this virtual escape, let them make, make their own islands and be on vacation with their friends without having to leave the home. So a lot of stuff, a lot of exciting stuff happening in gaming that kind of you know, countered the trends we saw in the other industries. Yeah, I mean, I would even the consumption wise, I imagine gaming increased or or expanded. It's yes. I just look at I even just look at my own family, right? I've got two kids, 10 year old and a, a six year old. And we're pretty light on screen time, except then this hit. And it's like being I think of it as like being on a plane, you know, if you've got a nine hour flight, and you're pretty careful with your kids on on watching screens. All of a sudden, that all goes out the window, and you're just like, "We're just going to get through this." And uh, and so I've even seen, you know, the adoption of things like Among Us, right? Mm-hmm. Which is maybe not console based, but you do have these. So one of my kids plays Among Us primarily as a social. Like I see it as they think that they're playing with their friends, right? So they have a small group. So I'm, I'm interested in how how you think gaming has changed or is there anything with gaming that will, will stick after this that wouldn't have happened without a pandemic? That's an an interesting question. I mean, the one problem you have in gaming is that you really can't predict where things are going to go, right? Like, we knew Animal Crossing was going to be big and we knew Pokemon Go was going to be big before they launched, but you can never really predict what will then happen with those game archetypes. Uh, think of Guitar Hero, right? We all thought Guitar Hero would be here forever or Tony Hawk or any of these kind of big defining uh, game franchise leads. And then suddenly they're all gone, right? right. We're not, we had a new Tony Hawk, like a remake uh, this year, but uh, extreme sports is not a topic anymore, like a a big franchise in gaming anymore. And, and, and the same with, you know, Pokemon Go is still going on in the background, but it did not herald uh, the beginning of all these AR games that everybody would be playing and getting out of the house. And so, um, first of all, there was a there was a huge spike in March, um, not just for game consumption. You can th- see this in like Steam stats, or you know, if you if you look at any um, tracking services that try to measure what people are doing in games, you can see the spike. But th- then you also see the the spike in media consumption, whether it's an IGN or YouTube or Twitch, any of these big platforms, you can see the volume of videos being watched in games being spectated going up rapidly. And we saw it in our strategy guides, you know, specifically around key games. Like, you know, you mentioned one Fortnite, obviously is another one, Animal Crossing. Uh, so all of that consumption spiked, but then it leveled out over the course of the year. And I think um, some of the 
some of the facts you are simply time-based with so many people being at home, people, you know, finish their work day a little bit earlier rather than uh, maybe shutting down at five and having a one hour commute, people start playing games at five. And so when things return to normalcy, we'll see. We'll, with companies allowing more people to work from home, and we're certainly in that bucket as well, and our parent company is, you might see, you know, increased consumption of games earlier in the day you may, may see some pattern shifts as far as game genres shifting it's too early to tell for that yeah and so i'm curious do you find you've covered this industry and other industries for a long time would you consider yourself a gamer oh yeah 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 and have you always been like did did you is that how you i'm curious because you uh, you've been with IGN in, in whatever capacity that looked like for quite a while, since 96, I believe. Right. Did you get into it as a gamer or did you get into it because you were a journalist? Okay. So I, as a kid, my dad bought the family of Fairchild Channel F. That is a second generation console. We're, you know, uh, generation nine. Um, and the, and it was the first console that had cartridges. Um, by today's standards, it's so it, it, it's such a limited machine. The size of a single pixel uh, was the size of your thumbnail, basically, on your TV screen, right? Um, and so, already as a kid, I was really fascinated, just like any kid, with you know these bright colors moving on the screen and dreaming about the things that were to come. And so. Uh, in my developing years, I played um, home computers. I grew up in Germany, so uh, you know, really into Commodore 64, the Atari home computers. And then I got to my college age, and I just kind of dropped. And you know, that was the same time that the industry crashed. You know, with the end of the Atari VCS, suddenly gaming was gone from a lot of households. And for me, that was the same. And I actually missed the beginning of the NES resurgence. Um, Ironically, I moved to Japan, um, and my now wife and my best friend got me back into gaming. They bought me for my birthday, they bought me a Super Famicom, which is the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in the US. And uh, I just, I had, you know, I had sat out so much in gaming that I was just mesmerized by how amazing and sophisticated games had become. It doesn't hurt that, you know, my first games were made by Nintendo, one of the best developers ever. Like, you yeah. know, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past and Super Mario World, all that, you know, instantly uh, grabbed me. And so then I really got into games and I played everything. You know, I played all the big Final Fantasies, Dragon Quest, everything that was popular in Japan. Um to an obsessive degree where, you know, during the day I would go to university at night, I would be playing Final Fantasy uh, and, right. and also stay, stand in line at a shop before it opened to get the latest game. And so from that moment on, I knew there was some sort of connection to gaming and the games industry. And I was thinking, is there a way to make that happen from a career perspective? And then I got to this point where I said, well, probably not, right? I'm not a programmer. I'm not good at math. I'm a writer. And so there's probably nothing to combine these two things. And it wasn't until many years later when I was in grad school at UC Berkeley, um, where just I, just to play around with HTML and new media publishing, I created my own fan site because of my love for Nintendo. I made that a Nintendo uh, fan site. And I suddenly had visitors and readers, you know, whereas like all the other stuff journalism seemed so hard to get into, to get published, to actually get readers and measure readership. Suddenly I, I had it all by just doing it by myself. 
And so I was able to use my love for gaming for some for a gap that was there, you know, coverage of uh, these new platforms. And I covered the Japanese gaming market. And uh, yeah, so it was my love for gaming combined with my chosen career path of going into journalism. I wanted to do documentary, something like that, that somehow clicked into place. And, you know, there was an audience for it. And how interesting. So, you know, that time in your life where you're like, oh, I, I love video games. I love everything about them. If only there was a career. And now, <laughs> flash now like there is careers Like it- you can be a gamer, and it could be a massively lucrative career. Both of my kids watch Preston plays. Yeah. Like they're not gamers, I wouldn't say. We mm-hmm. do have a Switch. Um, they play it a bit. But I would say they're bigger uh, like watchers of gamers yeah. than they are gamers themselves. And I asked uh, my 10-year-old, you know, he's he's I'm interested in what he wants to do when he's older. And he said, I want to be a YouTuber. <laughs> And the fact that that's even a reasonable sentence for somebody to say, like, what a shocking difference from from what you grew up in when video games were around, right? Oh, my. I mean, I honestly, looking back, if we had had a platform like YouTube, anything to self-publish at the time, uh, you know, that would have been a wonderful opportunity or, or Twitch or, you know, even blogging platforms that allowed you to easily reach an audience. Uh, but I think the other factor um, is that, you know, publishing is commoditized to, in, in the way that it is now. Um, there's just so many people who are saying they want to be a YouTuber and only a tiny percentage of them will ever amount to, you know, uh, something that is close to a, a paying job. And I think that's a reality that uh, our, our youngins haven't grasped yet, right? That it's, you see somebody sitting in front of the, the screen and, you know, uh, providing entertainment because they're good at a game or they're funny or their reactions are entertaining to watch or they're insightful. And every kid watches this now and goes, I can do that. I can play games. I'm really good at this Mm -hmm. game. So this could be a career for me. The reality is it's really hard to get in. And the, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe myself as special. I think one of the, the ways that I got in is barrier to entry back in the 90s was so high and that mm. the combination of somebody who had you know some journalism background was good with video editing had some design chops and could do html and publish all that content and you know was nuts enough to spend his evening hours and night hours doing that that's that was the opportunity that afforded me to break through and i think it's much harder now that all these tools are so commoditized yeah well and let's talk about how you got into this because I want to almost want to do like a chronology of IGN because it's such an interesting story and you've been there since like right around the beginning of it. So IGN and I, I'll get you to fact check me on some of this stuff, but uh-huh. IGN started out as a like an affiliate network of sites. It was actually print publisher originally, right? Yeah. So the, the parent company was Imagine Media. They, you know, were the U.S. Um, version of a print publisher called Future in England and actually in recent years changed their name uh, back to Future in the U.S. as well. So they're still around. But it was called Imagine Media, Media with Passion back then. And they had a bunch of magazines. Like if you remember Business 2.0, they had Next Generation Magazine, you know, uh, the official uh, PlayStation. They had uh, PSM at the time. So, you know, a bunch of gaming publications already. Um and then uh, uh, ultra game players. And then they they smartly expanded into online, 
you know, and uh, their the first website they published themselves was n64.com. At the launch of the Nintendo 64, they put out this website dedicated to Nintendo. Then they did one for PlayStation, for Saturn, the Sega console at the time, you know, um, basically rolling out these fan communities right around the same time uh, that I did my own fan site. And uh, at the... At the same time, they also created the uh, Imagine Games Network, which was this affiliate network. Lots of websites that they didn't operate, they would sell their ads, basically provide you know ad serving to these websites and then pay them a cut. Uh, and the idea back then, I think, was just a volume play. Sign up as many as you can because nobody's asking about the quality of content or the targeting or anything. Just create this giant network of gaming sites and Part of it were, you know, sites like Game Sages, which became part of IGN later, Game Facts, um, basically any you know, RP game or any uh, website, any major fan site that was growing an audience. Um, and, you know, later my own fan site, too. And so they they rolled these all up. Um, and then it, it wasn't until later that it became this kind of coherent IGN website that you see today. Well, because people forget, like, that at this time, it's like 1996, 1997 type time, I, I looked this up. So IB has been reporting on ad revenue forever, right? Yeah. And I looked at the revenue from the entire year of 1996. The entire internet advertising spend was $267 million for the year uh-huh. across the entire industry. Like Google makes that, I think their advertising business i did the math makes it in 17 hours oh my god oh right like so at the time there's no way that people were thinking oh this is obvious like this is an obvious choice for a career for a for an industry so what was it what was it google wasn't even around yet i don't think google was founded until what like 98 or something like that so what was it about this space that made you think yeah yeah this is where i want to this is, I'm going to place my bet here on this internet thing. It was honestly, it was passion driven, right? My excitement for gaming and just in my mind, it was very, very clear that just like comic books were the stuff of kids back in the 70s and 80s and parents were worried about their kids reading them and how movies were this amazing novelty still in the the 30s and 40s and people said yeah that's not going to dominate our lives right like books will forever be uh ruling our entertainment needs i saw games and i i said eventually these games are going to be so realistic that you'll play movies that you know these these stories that you're you're leaning back and you're experiencing right now on your television screen or in movie theaters will be the things that you play. And like, in my mind, it was completely clear. It's like two generations down, that will be the predominant form of entertainment for people. And, you know, like if you look at what this year, uh, the, the global entertainment market, if you look at gaming, I think we're knocking on 160 billion worldwide compared to, you know, just over 40 billion for the movie's box office. Sorry, that was last year. And, you know, so gaming has has done this kind of steady, quiet ramp up until, you know, mobile gaming came in and it really exploded. But but that was the driving factor. It was I wasn't looking at the advertising market and thinking, um, you know, this is going to be the most lucrative uh, business out of all of them. I, I, I was just looking at how predominant gaming could become in the future and that 
people are going to have a need and that need is advice and discovery and fandom and you know a friend on the couch who tells them what game to play next and so so this all actually starts to make a bunch of sense over the next couple of years because you lead into you know 97 98 99 pc magazine names ign one of the world's top 100 websites you and the team spin the sites out uh, tell me a little bit about that moment in time because the February or whatever, 1999, mm-hmm. that was, that was like a heyday, one of the heydays of the internet, right? Like nothing could go wrong in my view of what that time was like anyway. Tell me what it was like at that specific time pre-bust. There was this tremendous, um, just this tremendous excitement. And obviously you, you still have a lot of that today where, you know the valuation of a company isn't really based on the money it's making now, and the, the you know the aspiration that someday it 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 will be one of the market leaders and and just rake in uh, the dollars. And there was the thought that the new media darling internet would eventually replace magazines, which you know obviously that's a that was a, a good bet, um, but that the value of targeted ad inventory would quickly surpass also television advertising where you couldn't measure if somebody was actually seeing the ads and all of that. And that, that hasn't quite happened. Right. Um, and so they, with that came a tremendous amount of hubris to, to say, let's just go nuts and spend. And at the time, you know, um, the idea was spinning out IGN as a standalone, and it wasn't called IGN yet. Spinning out IGN and some other properties out as a standalone company would let the company focus entirely on the internet sector. Would you know protect the magazines as something different? You know, being left behind at the the old publishing company. And so, um, I actually thought it was tremendously courageous that a lot of people at Imagine said, "Yeah." Um, Let's uh, let's spin out IGN and not retain any internet business within the print publisher. Which, a couple of years down the line, they actually you know restarted and they launched websites like Daily Radar, which essentially were IGN competitors uh, when IGN went went it alone. Um, no, there was just this thinking that you can create these internet focused companies, and the vision for what IGN would become was still this affiliate network. Um, the company. At launch, uh, at spinout, was called Affiliation was the working name, and then it was named Snowball.com. And Snowball was supposed to be this snowball of websites around the internet representing all the interests of you know everything you could ever want for. So if you wanted to reach a college student and you know align with education, Snowball would have power students. Uh, or if you want, if you were into football, it would have NFL under the helmet. And if you wanted gaming, you'd have IGN. Um, and then, you know, already in 1999, you'd realize that the success story of some of those networks couldn't really, or some of those websites couldn't really be replicated. And so you already saw consolidation. What IGN became in 1999 was actually the combination of um, IGN.com, so the Imagine Games Network, plus the Den, the Daily Entertainment Network, which was doing the same thing for entertainment that IGN was doing for gaming, but not reaching an audience. And then we rolled in a cheat site called uh, Game Sages. It's called The Secrets of the Sega Sages before then. And so at that point, we created something special, which was this website for gamers that realized that gamers weren't into gaming 
24-7 that they also wanted to know about movies and comics and all that stuff. But yeah, it was all, everybody was flying high thinking, hey, you just got to spend big because the money's coming. And then you know what happened next. Well, then, yeah. So then 2000 hits and the company, so maybe for the timing here, the company, so now you're a founder of this new company with the founding team, right? Yep. And then the company goes public was Correct. it going public while things were going good was it because this was a messy time i remember this like it was just chaos for for a re, over a really short period of time so walk us through like the year 2000 yeah i'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm doing this from memory a bit so you know pardons if i don't get it all right but yes ign was one of the really one of the sites to slip out right at the mo like right before the crash so, you know, there were some signs that things weren't going to work out okay, but, they, you know, the machine had started to take IGN public and, uh, you know, uh, snowball at the time. And uh, it, it slipped out and then the market crashed and the banner ad, you know, the, the currency of a media site, this is, you know, pre-roll, all of that wasn't a, th wasn't a thing yet or branded content. It was all about the 468.60 banner ad. Um, it suddenly got devalued overnight. And so we got out, we, we went public, and then over the months that followed, stocks just kept going down and down and down. You know, when you're getting closer to that $1 mark where you get delisted, um, our CEO at the time uh, did, a, did a split in order to counter some of those things and, and, and stay uh, on the index and all of that. So lots of wrangling. Uh, we had a lot of money in the bank, but it became very, very clear that it wasn't the time for expansion. And so the company was also sitting on a bunch of real estate, right? They had uh, bought new buildings that were commissioned down in Brisbane, California. We went from really janky digs to really awesome buildings. And then as the, as the, as the ad economy kept on crashing and we weren't sure where the money was going to come from, the halls would get emptier and emptier, right? And there were layoffs and reductions and you went from, uh, you went from hundreds and hundreds of employees and, you know, a, a period of where every day you would see a new face in the corridor, someone you hadn't met yet to, you know, just the, the halls emptying out and there being a giant graveyard of empty Aeron chairs in one corner of the building and one building never actually being populated. Uh, so scary, uh, you know, and to us, we, we were the content guys and we saw that our website kept on just growing. The website just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, generating more and more inventory and there was all this potential and none of the ads were getting sold. Hmm. Right, because you're looking. You know what? I talked to um, to another guest uh, who was was in media at that time and saw the same thing, which was the what what you'd think as a content person, your fundamentals are, which is people are interested in the stuff that we're doing at higher and higher amounts. That should mean that we're becoming more and more relevant. Yeah. But at the same time, you had this like secondary part, which was the ad market that you had less control over or no control over directly that was crashing, yeah. which was the entire valuation of these companies at the time. Yeah, That must have been a crazy, like, what did it feel like to, to know that you were sitting on something exciting, but that the valuations of this exciting thing were, were going downhill really, really quickly? Yeah, it was, it was incredibly frustrating. And we, we kind of, as content 
teams you when you're leading a content team you're kind of you always feel like you're the redheaded stepchild inside a business mm-hmm. that is you know especially at a, at a period of growth where you always feel like nobody values you and everybody only values the ad sellers and all of that and you know journalists make less money than everybody else in the company like you you felt like you were you were this this small team within this big company and you kind of wanted to just put on your blinders and do what you were doing best and that was growing audience and uh, you know making making things that were of high quality like broadband ready videos you know gorgeous like we worked on our capture equipment to put out the most gorgeous videos and all of that and then you stop and you go the more people watch, watch those videos the worse off we are because bandwidth costs were increasing at such a level. Our message boards on IGN were some of the most popular message boards on the on the web, I think like number two at one point. Um, this is before Reddit existed. And all of that was cost, you know, just everything was so expensive, bandwidth and getting, you know, the engineering teams to make sure those systems could actually handle all that volume. Uh, you know, covering E3, these big events and our aspirations to update around the clock and bring as much media to people, all of that was starting to hurt us. And so mm. the, you know, what the CEO said, well, if the money is not coming from the ad market, the users are going to have to pay. To us, it was super scary because we competed on, we competed with the magazines and TV on the ground said, we do everything better than them and we do it for free. And suddenly we, we had to entertain charging for it. And we, we launched this um, program called IGN Insider. And it was, I got to say, it was do or die, right? There was no Patreon or anything where you could get people to just donate your money. So we, um, we locked a bunch of stuff that used to be free behind the wall. So from one day to the next, people coming to this ginormous message board were told, hey, if you want to access these, these message boards, you now got to pay up. And um, that meant... I mean, I kind of joke that we created Reddit overnight um, because we, you know, we put all these walls in place where people were not just unwilling to come in in some, in, in many cases, they were unable because they didn't have the dollars or they didn't have a credit card to pay us. And so uh, we signed up hundreds of thousands of paying subscribers um, in, you know, in the weeks that followed, but uh, we also really stymied the growth. And even when we... Um, dialed back the the wall a bit and we told people oh no no you get you get content for free but if you read more than x pages a week the audience already felt like they had the 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 audience was already spreading the gospel that if you want to enjoy agin you got to pay and i think that really hampered our growth then mm. well and what an interesting like repeat of history that happens in media where where you do have like chase ad dollars for a long period of time, which means everything is about scale. And then maybe that advertising dollar goes away either through like some sort of crash or maybe Google and Facebook swallow up a bunch of it. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, well, we've got to make some money. And so someone's going to have to pay us. And maybe it makes sense that the consumer pays us, not this indirect, you know, advertiser off yeah. of that. I, I think that's really interesting to hear you talk about at that time, because you could be talking about today yeah. in the, in the same way. Right. And, Funny enough, I mean, some of the, I think the biggest motivator for people to subscribe wasn't access to exclusive footage uh, and stuff like that. It was the personalities, right? The, the people, we had really focused in on making sure that our personalities 
mostly pre-video through writing and columns and, and interactions were people that the audience liked and identified with. And so we had early on invested in personalities to make sure that we're not just about exclusive access to, you know, videos and images and previews and all of that. And um, it, I think it was on the strength of uh, fans identifying with these personalities that they were actually subscribing to our services. And so that's something that's, you know, that that is still one of the the primary motivators nowadays. You know, people subscribing to Twitch channels aren't doing so because they like the game being played. They like the personality. They trust this. Uh, you know, they trust the streamer, and so it's this this kind of celebrity angle more than the journalism angle that has converted people to become fans and subscribers. Well, yeah, and let's. So you're building up. You know, an audience that you could you could say is maybe even more dedicated. And let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, so you continue to build this. I, I believe the company goes private uh, at some point yep. after that market crash and going public. And then let's fast forward to 2005. So now you've spent five years kind of building everything. You know, back up or not necessarily building back up, but just continuing on the way. And then News Corp comes in mm-hmm. and. And buys IGN for, I believe, six hundred and fifty million is what it was reported. That's what they say. That's what they say. That's all <laughs> that you. Is there other numbers that you are able to disclose, or are you going to go with the six fifty that's publicly out there right now? No. Look, um, it, I, 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 I obviously did didn't see a, a big share of those dollars. Otherwise, um, I'd be. Uh, I'd be talking to you from an island here. No, um, I think at the time, News Corp paid a lot of money. They bought IGN for um, a big stash uh, of, of cash, as well as MySpace. Those two big companies yeah. were their, their investments at the time. And it's uh, 100% credit to our CEO, Mark Jung, at the time that he was able to get companies excited about the prospects of buying into gaming. Uh, you know, IGN Games and Entertainment Network, but really selling IGN on the value of gaming and where it was going to go. And I think at the time, it just matched what News Corp was looking into. They were running some uh, some arms of uh, of their business, uh, actually doing some game development as well, uh, were bullish on that whole market. And so, yes, they, they, they overpaid. Well, and I actually, so it, to me, this must have been an interesting time because, you know, you're Whatever the numbers are, let's let's just go with the reported numbers. It's like six hundred fifty million for IGN. I think MySpace was only reportedly bought for five hundred and eighty million. And what the cash versus you know shares, yeah. et options, et cetera, earnouts, everything like that. But like from that standpoint, you could say that IGN was bigger than MySpace at the time. Uh, and Rupert Murdoch actually, I I read the story. It was in Business Week, the Wayback Machine. I could find the the online article from September two thousand five where. He says, uh, with the acquisition of IGN and its 28 million unique users, we have gone a long way toward achieving two of our key strategic objectives in our efforts to become a leading and profitable internet presence, which is, I mean, that's Rupert Murdoch saying that this thing that that you have been a big part of building and taking a bet on. I'm curious when you hear what would be like one of the biggest business leaders and media people in the (laughs) world talking about that, like, did that, you know, was there any sort of recognition of that you'd built something like incredible that not many people have been a part of? 
Yeah, and uh, look, I mean, it was a it was validation. By the way, IGN was not larger than MySpace, right? MySpace at its right. heyday was just this virally growing social network, and you know, if things had gone differently, I'm sure it would still be one of the biggest ones out there. So IGN was small by comparison, but IGN was a completely different animal because IGN was a we call it a decision media web website where you know when we reviewed a game, people would would decide whether to buy it or not. And the, the publishers realized that uh, and, and really wanted to have their, their ads on IGN. Like it, it was a very different, a different value proposition from a social network. Obviously now mm-hmm. social networks have all the ad targeting and data uh, you know, uh, for the users um, to, to offer uh, tremendous value like that too. But in the beginning, it just wasn't like that. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was amazing. Um, you know, I was, uh, I, I was I grew up in a small town in Germany and I found myself in rooms at News Corp with the leaders of all these giant newspapers, TV channels, um, you know, showrunners uh, before anyone knew what Avatar the movie was going to be. They they told us this is going to be as big as Star Wars. And like suddenly you were on the inside and it all seemed very surreal. Now, you know starry-eyed as we were back then we thought okay we can finally invest in ign right like all these years where we were private and we really had to operate on a shoestring budget and do things on the cheap and by the way that's one of the reasons why ign has survived this we were very careful uh for the uh, what we were spending and what we're doing and you know, some of the other brands owned by Snowball are all shut down and gone and IGN isn't. Um, but we thought, okay, now, you know, Big Daddy's going to come in, Rupert's going to, you know, open the pocketbook and we're going to be able to advertise IGN on this IGN on the Simpsons or, you know, we're going to be able to do stuff with Fox Sports and all of that. Uh, the reality was that they ran their they ran their businesses very much in a siloed fashion. It was very difficult to actually connect the strings, even between uh, the Fox Interactive Media brands. FIM, you know, that was the group that IGN and MySpace were part of. And the within the first weeks that we were part of Fox Interactive Media with MySpace, Fox set up a meeting for us with MySpace's leaders um, to talk about cross-pollination, bringing gaming into MySpace in a big way. And like we went to the... CEO and I and some others went to the MySpace, MySpace headquarters and we waited for three hours in their lobby because <laughs> the MySpace team just wouldn't meet with us, even though we had an appointment and all that. So you can tell like the reality was starting to set in where we went like, well, maybe maybe there is nobody else who has the master plan who's going to connect us all. You know, maybe we're just going to have to focus on our own property and then just keep pitching everybody else and see where it goes. Yeah, because this was, I, I do remember this time where, you know, News Corp had got MySpace and, and bought other properties like IGN. And it was going to be like the greatest internet company of all yeah. time. And then it just never really came to fruition because within like a few years, I guess not a few years, but several years later, uh, it ends up selling off most of at a discount most of the things that it had bought right some yeah. at a very significant discount so so what happened next for from the ownership perspective when did yep. when did Ziv Davis come in to to play yeah so i mean first of all we were we were part of fox and and there were some there's some great um uh 
synergy, we were able to put some content on television on the Speed Channel and stuff. So there, there, there was some cross pollination going on, but it, it just seemed like you know Fox's aspirations to take all these internet companies and link them up kind of started to stumble once they even kicked off a project to create a CMS for all of the internet properties, and they they were going to build one for IGN and Fox uh, uh, Sports, and quickly realized that we're nothing alike and our needs are so different. And so that's where this kind of grand idea of a network was already starting to stumble. And then, you know, just size of our business. We, If Fox was a, a skyscraper, a, a Nakatomi Plaza skyscraper, we were the tiny fire hydrant next to it and just like, you know, just didn't have the size for them to care in the end. And so then when Rupert decided he was going to, you know, break up the company into, you know, entertainment and news and all of that. I think he just said, I don't need internet. Like internet just wasn't, wasn't something that he was that excited about. Um, and there, there was a lot of talk at the time that he didn't want any web uh, companies. Um, some confusion. He, uh, I remember this really weird moment where, uh, it was basically the doorbell rang and Rupert stands in front of the IGN building and he wanted to visit us, you know, not not literally. They, they announced it and he came in and we said, well, but Rupert, you're selling us. And he said, oh, no, that's actually not the case. We really like IGN. And then all his advisors behind him were kind of like shaking their heads quietly at us saying, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to sell you. So it was like this weird, this weird time of confusion Um where, you know, I, I don't think uh, Newscope had its story straight on what they were going to do in the internet. So they did, um, they did you know, uh, sell us. Ziff Davis came in and Ziff Davis had been a competitor to IGN for many years. You know, it's a, it's a storied old company. They used to publish EGM magazine, which that was one of my first freelance gigs before IGN. And we, we loved those properties. They had fallen from grace and then had been rebooted and uh, led by, you know, Vivek Shah, who really kind of re-energized the business and said, I'm going to build a media company, but we're going to do everything at a really high margin. Like basically the only media businesses we pursue are at a high margin. They came in, they looked at IGN. They were amazed at what we did with our small team, just kind of the engagement metrics, the amount of videos users watched on IGN. They were, they were really... Um, quite surprised because a lot of their other properties were a more uh, search driven, you know, very dependent on search audiences. IGN had a big chunk of just fans who would show up for anything we did. And so then they looked at all the things we didn't do. You know, we didn't have a commerce business at the time. And they said, oh, there's a tremendous opportunity to make this an actually profitable business, which we were not at the time. And so, yeah. We sat in a room with them. They asked a lot of smart questions, and in the end, it ended up being an acquisition. Hmm. What a what a ride! Like, dude, just hearing, you know, from starting out, and then it becomes this big thing. It goes public. It crashes. Yeah. It grows again. Fox buys it. Like, what a what an interesting roller coaster. Which brings us to today. Yeah. And so tell tell me what IGN is today, and and where you think it's going in the future. So IGN has transformed from being a website to be a games and entertainment brand, uh, right? So in any any given day, we attract as big of an audience on TikTok or Snapchat or YouTube or, you know, streaming OTT TV as we do on our website, which has been around since 96 in, in some form. And so... Um, 
we we took the idea of gamers being into you know playstation and xbox and pc and you know loving like looking forward to the next star wars movie or harry potter or you know uh, marvel we took that concept and we said all right instead of kind of doing this hey there's a website let's advertise and get people to it approach let's just take all that content and put it on all these different platforms and so the last couple of years have been about starting stuff on platforms abandoning the ones that don't work uh doubling down on the ones where we saw a, a light at the end of the tunnel and we we focused almost entirely on engagement so rather than followers it was all likes and shares and users no no purchased user acquisition, all organically grown. And even before we could monetize on those platforms. And then the last few years have been about honing the content, making sure the content is right for each platform. So I'll give you an example. We have, we've had podcasts for ages, right? Game Scoop, one of our oldest podcasts, has been around for many, many years. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of listeners um, through podcast services. We, we, we're taking those brands and we're taking putting them, for example, on Snapchat, and we're changing them. We're Instead of saying it needs to be a 60-minute show about some you know, gaming, we're turning them into five-minute shows with the same brands, um, and they're doing hundreds of thousands of more views and reaching audiences that we would never capture with a 60-minute audio programming. And so for someone in their car commuting, Beyond or unlocked or NVC or GameScoop means something different for than for a kid who are watching us on their on their phone on Snapchat or TikTok. So it's it's really exciting, and it's you, you just have to be open to the fact that you don't know the solution, you don't know you don't know the answer um, when you're stepping into these new platforms, and you have to learn from the audiences and the fans there and uh, adapt and not be afraid to walk away from things that don't work. And after all these years, do you still like love video games and love entertainment? Yeah, it's still, you know, last night I was staying up way too late to finish uh, Spider-Man Miles Morales on my brand new PlayStation 5. Um, and if I didn't have a full-time job and needed to be a good ro role model to my, uh, my three kids... I probably still pull all-nighters finishing the latest role-playing game. I love that. Like, not bad for a kid from a small town in Germany that just <laughs> wanted to play video games to be, you know, like, probably that kid, all they wanted to do was be with first in line to get the PS5. And you've managed to do that through this roller coaster of events that have happened throughout your life. It's, it's quite incredible to be able to hold on to a, a passion. You don't get to see many people that get to live in their passion for, for such a long period of time. It was all selfish. Yes. I just wanted to be able to play games before everybody else. That's it. <laughs> well, I actually, the video game thing is interesting because you have three kids. I have two kids. And I have found that the more things that I can be interested in as a parent that they're also interested in does create a lot of bonding moments that don't feel, you know, like one of us is doing it for the other one. Like we're both, you're genuinely entertained. You're genuinely <laughs> into it. It can create these really great moments bonding moments, I find anyway. And that could be also me just selfishly 
also wanting to play video games. No, that's that's true. So, you know, when my kids were little, we'd play games that have uh, daddy modes and the more parent modes where, you know, like Nintendo's always good at that, where one person controls the main character and the other one has a pointer and can do something. Uh, you know, that's that. those were really great bonding moments with my kids. And we would all play Smash and Mario Kart and all these games together growing up. But then you get to this point where you realize that what you thought could never happen to you where you're looking back at your parents and you're like, why doesn't your why doesn't my dad understand how remote control works? Or why doesn't he why doesn't he enjoy the Lord of the Rings movies? These are the best thing ever, right? Or Avengers or something. It's happening to you too. You know, my kids are playing games um, that are just not that enjoyable to me. Like, whereas like I'm in for story and exploration, they may be in it for the challenge and playing games like, you know, um, bloodborne or something um that 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 i'm not that much into but at the same time you're also seeing and that, that's where the learning experience comes in that their media consumption habits are changing and so mm-hmm. my son will play a video game and watch a video at the same time and so guess what's not important production value like all we spend all these years building beautiful studios and creating content that looks like a million bucks so our advertisers are also proud of it and want to align with it and then a kid watches it while actually focusing on playing a game with their friends and the audio and the storytelling and the experience are much more important than the beautiful studio lights. And so, you know, that's that's the the wonderful value we derive from our kids too when you're in a business that inherently services their their needs and, and their likes as well. That's so interesting. Well, I've I've loved having you on the show. And before I let you go, I normally ask for a book recommendation, but I'm going to be a bit selfish here. And I think what everyone would want to know, me, all of our (laughs) listeners, is what game you would recommend. Uh, So I'm going to even make it a little bit more selfish. So we've got a switch. Yeah. Uh, What game would you recommend? I'm, I'm shopping for Christmas presents right now. I'm probably looking for something that my kids would be into. What's your game recommendation this Christmas season? All right, so that's a tricky one because if you're a new Switch owner, there's only one one answer, and that's The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which is, I believe, one of the best, if not the best game ever made, and it happens to be on the Switch, but it was also available at launch, so it's three years old now. So the hot game for Switch, and I, I, I will preface this by saying Switch is not having a great year from a new software release perspective. They were definitely impacted by the coronavirus situation right nintendo is a company that likes to get stuff done in a creative environment and not with individuals working from home very protective Mm -hmm. of of data and and you know not letting people take stuff home um so they 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 didn't have a great year and but they had one mega hit and that is animal crossing new horizons and that came out um you know earlier in the year it was already a big hit if you have a kid and you're even if you're a concerned parent about video games, it is the most peaceful, creative, collaborative, and positive experience you can find on any video game console. It's just it's joy in a box, and it's all about being creative and uh, building your own island. Um, so I, I think everyone should play that. I love it. That's amazing. Well, thanks for sharing your story with us. I can't wait to see where you and IGN and the whole industry goes next. And next time we'll we'll make sure once post-vaccine, we'll be able to get back together in some sort of studio. And now that we've done this podcast episode, maybe we'll just get together and play uh, Legend of Zelda or something. That sounds great. Let's do it. I can't wait to get back into the studios. 
Well, Fair, thanks for a lot for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the Science of Storytelling. Don't forget to leave us a comment. We love hearing from you. We have a ton more episodes coming up this season with some absolutely amazing guests. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss a single one. See you next time.